So John gave me uh, three tasks this morning. One is to kind of introduce myself. The second is to talk to you out of 1 Corinthians. And the third is to keep your attention the whole time. So I've got my work cut out for me, especially since this is the early morning service. Um, So if I clap, scream, or dance, you'll know that's just an attempt to wake a couple people up. Uh, The first thing that I need to do is introduce myself to you a little bit. Um, As John said, I'm community group's pastor. I've been here about seven months now. And a little history of me, I grew up in Manassas, about 15 to 20 miles from here. Uh, My mom was very religious. She would attend church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, Thursday night. She was in the choir and taught Sunday school for 13 years. My dad, on the other hand, may have stepped foot in church twice outside of weddings and funerals. He was a heavy alcoholic, he was a hard worker, um, but often very verbally abusive and controlling, particularly to my mother. Um, I have a sister that's nine years older, and so she uh, ended up going with my dad more often than not to do jobs and hanging out, kind of skipping church. I, by God's grace, tended to go more with my mom to church. Uh, They had an agreement that she could never force us to go to church, or my dad would, you know, kind of just send them out. Um, So it was by God's grace that I went to church most of the time. And this created, however, a challenge, a a disconnect between my dad and I. As you can imagine, a sister that wants to go with a dad that's just doing whatever he wants to do, and instead of me doing chores and yard work, I was going to church. In high school, skipping a lot of things here, um, and I've got some really interesting stories, but uh, this isn't the place for them. In high school, I really connected with God over a sermon that talked about the fatherhood of God. And not having a father that was very religious, not having one that was connected emotionally or communicated with me or anything like that, I really wanted this. And so I started making faith my own. Uh, As you can imagine, this drove my dad and I even further apart, as now I'm becoming this religious kid. I wasn't just going to church on Sundays with my mom, but I was talking about him outside of church. It was a very interesting situation. In high school... Uh, My senior year, my parents' relationship after 32 years of marriage kind of came to a head. My mom and I packed up and left. We'd had enough. He went to work one day, and we decided, well, this is our our chance. Why don't we go? And uh, as you can imagine, this drove a wedge even further between my dad and I, as now I'm not only having a disconnect because of religion, but I'm leaving him for what he would consider religion or my faith. So we've hopped from couch to couch, from room to room, anywhere we could find a cheap place or a free place for about four months, and uh, my parents reached an agreement to try it one more time. My dad went to counseling, quit drinking for two months, and it was a completely different person. Never seen him before, never interacted with him this way before, but again, like I said, it lasted two months. So it was a challenge in that sense to see what life could have been like and then to go back to it. I attended uh, Johnson Bible College, or Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a very small, conservative college, and um, there God began working on my heart. He began pushing me to make uh, efforts to restore the relationship with my dad. The things that faith had caused us to separate are now the things that are going to start pulling us back together. So I, I struggled with myself over a long time. How do I do this? What do I say? What do I do? And so one day I called him up and I apologized to him for the bitterness, for the anger that I had, um, for on many occasions wishing that we would either leave him or that he would die. It was very strong bitterness in me. And so 
God began to work on that and began challenging that relationship as I called him and communicated with him, kind of opened up some new doors. He'd had some health issues, so his drinking had diminished. And I think this openness of me just sharing my, my own problems, the way that I'd felt towards him, opened up that door. So I began repairing a relationship with him. While this is happening, my mom takes a trip to Israel and comes back and starts questioning her faith. So the person I had leaned on my whole life for faith uh, starts having questions that I'd never heard before about the Jewish roots of our faith, about the Jewishness of Jesus. If Jesus was the Messiah, why didn't he do certain things? And so while this is going on, I'm studying uh, theology in undergrad and having some very interesting conversations with her about her own faith. So my father's relationship, my, father, my relationship with him is repairing, but the relationship with my mom is now kind of falling apart. All again around faith. In 2006, I finished graduate school. I met the lovely young lady that was standing up here with me uh, in D.C. We dated for six months. We were engaged for six months, and we were married. I tricked her into it before she could have a second thought. Um, and so far, she hasn't gotten out of it. Um, we got married in 2007, and this was really a, a change in my life, not because of trans, uh, all the changes that happened with marriage, but because of the external things that were, came up. In 2007, the first week we were married, my wife's uh, grandmother passes away. A few months later, her parents would get divorced. Someone steals our identity. My mom and sister finally make the decision to convert to Judaism, um, so they converted to Judaism under a conservative rabbi. And a month after we were married, my father has a very serious surgery to clear an artery in his leg. It resulted in a 70-centimeter incision from his groin to his ankle. Uh, and because of this, and I was the only one in the area, I would find myself driving from Alexandria to Manassas on a daily basis to take care of him, to take care of the bandages, to help with the house. So this is our first, you know, Month, two months, three months of marriage, and we have the, all these things going on. The uh, surgery that my father had would ultimately get infected. He would have MRSA, and within the year, he would pass. And this year was not only challenging because of all these things, but it was actually one of the very strengthening things in our faith and in our relationship, the fact that we could lean on each other, the fact that through our prayer, we could, we could pray, we could unite around something, and as she had her own struggles, I had my own struggles, we could come together. We often say if we could survive that first year of marriage, we could survive anything, and so far we have. Um, and it's been very interesting just to see the way that faith, although has been divisive at certain times, it can certainly unite. In 2000, um, oh, also that first year I started seminary. Um, it was a lot of stuff that first year. Um, I don't recommend it for anyone. Um, the first year thing, not the marriage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I start seminary um, during this my mom and sister had converted like I said in 2009 they decided to make Aliyah and move to Israel so my mom and sister live in Jerusalem and uh, it's been an interesting effort to try and repair that relationship now uh, the faith that has torn us apart uh, trying to find what can we talk about what is there that we have in common that we can start building around again so that's been a challenge. But during this time in seminary, you know, like I said, God's been repairing that relationship. I studied and focused on Hebrew Bible and Hebrew language. I enjoy the Old Testament. I enjoy studies. 
and um, we planned on going into PhD. And my wife and I looked at each other and said seven years of school was enough. Same with loans, we'd had enough, so we we're taking a break. And maybe one day I'll continue researching at the PhD level. We'll see. So in 2011, I completed school, worked for a nonprofit just to get by until I came on staff here. And uh, it's been a great experience. So I hope that as we continue our time here, I hope we can continue to learn more about who each other is. Some of the leaders I've had a great opportunity to speak with, and uh, hopefully I'll have more opportunities to share my story uh, in not such a condensed fashion. Um, before we waste too much more time on that, I'd like to get to Scripture. So why don't we pray? Lord, your word is alive and well and active, and we thank you for your power. The fact that our faith has the ability to unite us, that we can find healing in your word and in a relationship with you, that it's not just about what we do or have to do, but it's about who you've made us to be. pray that your word would come alive this morning in your name. Amen. For the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about Corinth since about the beginning of September. And early on, John mentioned this Asclepian temple, this Greek god called Asclepius, that was known for healing the body. Those who were sick would make clay replicas or clay votives of the body part that was affected. So if you had something wrong with your arm or your hand or your leg, they would make an image of it, bring it to the temple, and pray to that god for healing. You had to remind the god what he was going to heal. And so in this temple, the Asclepian temple, they would have body parts strewn all about on the walls, on the floor, on the altar, as a symbol of the disease that had ravaged their bodies. So we have all these disconnected body parts. Not only in the temple would you see this, but even walking through the marketplace, and we have a picture of some of the things that have been recovered from Corinth about the body parts. So not only in the temple would you see these things, but walking through the marketplace, you would see tradesmen crafting these. Even if you weren't going to worship, this would be a constant reminder of the disease of the sickness that inflected those in Corinth that seemingly pulled the body apart. They're no longer attached to the greater core. And I believe this is what Paul has in mind when he writes 1 Corinthians 12. Let's read verses 12 through 20. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 20. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not, not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, again, think back to these images, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, it would not stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. See, Paul is addressing the divisions in Corinth that we've been talking about for the past couple weeks, not only those based on gender and ethnicity, 
but those based on intellectual ability. Who followed whom? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, all these different people that were vying for the attention. They wanted to demonstrate their worth by what they knew or the position that they held. And it's pulling apart at the members of the body. So Paul is addressing this and saying, just as the members in the Asclepian temple have been pulled apart because of disease, they're no longer connected to the greater body, so is the church at Corinth. You've allowed a disease to come into your members, and now it's pulling you guys apart. I see two things that Paul wants to do here that I believe we can take on for a message of ourselves, where this healing comes from. Where do we find the unity? How do we bring the body parts back together? And how do we find the healing that we're looking for? Or do we just remain separated? Do we just remain dismembered, each person doing their own thing? Let's look again at verses 12 and 13. It says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. In these verses, the word one appears five times, twice around one spirit. Paul is reminding them that it's not on the basis of their own abilities or a basis of what they have or what they can contribute, that they are part of the church. He's emphasizing the fact that it is by one spirit. They have been given one spirit, and through that one spirit, they can all be part of the church. What is he talking about here? As the first couple of ch- uh, sermon series on It's Complicated emphasize, he's talking about the gospel. We've received one spirit. And it's not by anything that they have done. See, Paul levels the playing field here and says whether you're rich or poor, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you all come in by one way. It's because you've received one spirit. He's talking about the grace that they have received. It's not on the basis of what they've done. And this is important because while there are many parts, there is only one gospel. And this is the emphasis that we've placed on the past couple weeks, that there is one thing that means salvation, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ to bring healing and forgiveness to our lives, to repair the relationship between God and us. And this is the gospel, that those who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is the whole message that Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians, is that Christ crucified that he rose again, and only through his death can we have a relationship with God. He reminds the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 7, that it wasn't on the basis of their merit. It wasn't on the basis of what they could do. It says, for what makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast about it as if you did not? They were boasting about their situation as if they'd earned their way into the church. You could see this in the the communion piece in chapter 11, where those who were rich were having big meals. They were having big meals before the poor people could even get there and look for crumbs because they believed they had more to contribute. They were boasting on the fact that I've been privileged. I've made something of myself. 
And therefore, I don't really need anyone else around me. Their desire to demonstrate their own worth, what they can contribute, was excluding others in the church that felt like they had nothing to contribute. And that's the challenge. When we start to puff ourselves up, other people around us start to shrink back. That causes division. That separates the body. Let's look at verses 14 through 20. There's a couple things in here that really need to stand out. Paul is talking about those who feel worthless. He's not talking about somebody who wants to change their position. He's not saying, if I were only a foot instead of a hand, I would have a better place. He's saying, because I'm a hand, I just don't belong. He's talking to those who feel worthless, those who see others who are highly capable, who have it all together, those that seem like they're spiritual, more spiritual than anyone else, and saying, well, because I don't look like them, I don't worship like them, I don't feel like I even have this thing together, I don't belong. He's trying to get those people to pull back. He's giving worth to those who feel like they don't fit. In verse 15, Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. It seems pretty straightforward. In the Greek, it's a little bit stronger than what we have. Greek believes in double negatives for emphasis. English does not. But the literal piece of it is not for any reason would it not continue to be part of the body. Paul is very emphatic that even though it seems inconsequential, even though it seems like it doesn't present much, it's even more important. If you take it, looking back at the body parts and think about the intestines that we have, it has no prominent place. It's hidden within us. God has covered it. But without those, we can't function. So even though it seems like it's unimportant, it's, in fact, essential. This is good news for me, like I said, because I grew up with a very uh, big struggle for finding my worth whether it was with my mom going to church and having to seem like I have it all together, trying to prove my spirituality, or whether it was with my dad going hunting, doing electrical work, doing plumbing, trying to prove that I can do something over here. The whole time, I didn't realize I was part of the family. I didn't have to try so hard. And I feel like my trying so hard to prove who I was actually pulled me apart from both parents. Because I was doing one thing over here for my mom, another thing over here for my dad, but not really being who God created me to be. Not being a parker, if you will. Just letting that family piece sit inside me. I was already part of the family. I didn't have to earn my way in, but I struggled so hard to do so. And it's not until I encountered God, and later on, like I said, in college, where God began to work on me on that, and saying, instead of highlighting the differences between you and your parents... Let's look for the commonalities. What can we build upon? So where's our focus? What should we be focusing on? Is it on what we can contribute? Is it based on our merit? Is it the worth that we feel like we can add? Or is it something else? The first thing that I think Paul wants to say this morning is that God gives us our place. Therefore, we can unite around the gospel. And that's said in verse 18. He's placed the parts in the body, every one of them, with a purpose and a reason. 
If you've accepted Jesus Christ this morning, you have a place in the church, and although the church doesn't always function the way it needs to, you're essential. You're important. But it's not just unity for unity's sake. If we are to be unified but remain, you know, we're not talking about conformity or uniformity. I'm not asking people to, you know, remove their personality from the situation. Paul's not talking about that. So what does it look like? Is it just unity for unity's sake? Paul seems to point towards a second piece of this, that there is also a goal that we have. It's not just about rallying around the gospel, which is our core message. It's about pushing towards a goal that he gives us. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 27. I'll finish reading this text. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our, parts, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now then, you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. Paul starts out talking about an analogy about the body, but doesn't clue us in that he's talking about the body of Christ until verse 27. There's two positions that are represented here. We've talked about one so far. It's about those who feel worthless. I don't belong. These last verses, 21 through 27, are talking about those who feel worthy. I don't need you. I'm doing all right. I don't need you. Both of these have an inherent flaw. They're focused on their own self-worth. Whether it's a positive view of their self-worth or a negative view, they're both focused on their self-worth. One wants to elevate their worth over the other to demonstrate their ability, and the other one is kind of sulking back, saying, I'm not worth anything. And they're both missing the point of the gospel. I've tried to prove my own value, as I said, and coming from a family that I would say is probably fairly typical, although not ideal, Um, I've really struggled with that sense of worth. My father dropped out of school in ninth grade, hated education, didn't know why I went to college. He was an electrician, worked hard, provided for his family, had no reason for education. And so I can look back over my life and say, well, I've come from that background. I'm the first one in my family, an extended family, to go to college, first one to get a degree. I've, you know, I'm kind of paying my own way. I started working when I was 15, I've earned my way here, and I can look back and say, I've made something of myself. And I have a sense of pride in that, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when you say, I've made something of myself, I can rely on myself. These people in Corinth were saying, I don't need you. Both to the people around them and to God, because they felt like they had it together that they didn't need anybody else's help. And that I've been guilty of that. The challenge is when we start to make something of ourselves, we can quickly say, well, I did it myself. 
But that's not really what Paul is talking about. When we focus on our own abilities and looking back and saying, I'm, I can do this and I'm relying on myself, we're basically eroding the common message of the gospel that it's not based on what we've done, but it's based on what Christ has done. The message that Paul has here is that God gives you more than what is necessary. If you look back here in verses 22 and 23, it says he gives them special honor, special treatment, special modesty. And that key word special there literally means more than what is necessary. And looking back over my life, I can either say, I've worked hard, I've done it, or I can be honest with myself and say, it's, it's by the grace of God, that it's the fact that God has come alongside me and given me more than what I deserved. And that's what God wants to do for those in the church, those who acknowledge him, is come alongside them and say, I want to give you more than what is necessary. You feel worthless this morning, and he wants to give you more than what is necessary. See, God gives us our goal, and this is the second point that Paul makes. God gives us our goal so we can unite around a goal. He gives us our value so that we can unite around a goal. We don't have to prove ourselves. He's already made us valuable. He's already given us worth so we can pursue. We all have a role here, and so we can fulfill the goal that he's given us. What is that goal? Verse 27 alludes to it, and it doesn't seem much like a goal at first, but it's really the essential piece of what the church is supposed to be. It says, now you are the body of Christ, and every one of you is a part of it. We're to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. It's not just being together in a unity and coming together in a building to learn or to feel like we have some spiritual encounter. It's to reflect the person of Jesus Christ. This has two two aspects to it. The internal piece, which is kind of what we're doing this morning, we're coming together around a common message. And Paul talks that there should be that mutual care, that mutual concern for one another in verses 25 and through 26 that binds us together, the looking out for one another, the love between each other. This is how the the world knows that we are Christians, that internal peace, that we are kind of jiving together. And the fact, you know, some of the stats that John showed where 89% of the church or 89% of the world views the church as about an issue kind of highlights the fact that maybe we're not getting this all right. We need to be drawn back to the gospel. We need to be drawn back to caring for one another and loving one another the way that Paul envisioned it and the way that Jesus envisioned it. The second piece of this, it's not only the internal, but it's the external piece. We're not just trying to build unity for unity's sake. If a team just functions well together but never accomplishes anything, what good is the team? And so we have this external role, this goal that God has given us to reflect Jesus Christ to those who are not yet part of the church. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I would like to apologize, at least on my behalf, that I haven't always reflected Jesus Christ. That our goal as a body is to show the grace, the forgiveness, the love that Jesus has poured out on us and transformed our lives so that other people find that, that joy, find that hope. Jesus prays it in John 17, and Derek mentioned it last week. May all believers be united in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
our unity, our coming together around the gospel and around this goal is that communicative piece that draws others to the church. And why is this so hard? I would say, like, the body parts in the Asclepian temple, this is so hard because we, as individuals and as the church, are often ravaged by disease. We have our own sicknesses. We have our own illnesses. And this is where Paul gets to the fallen nature of man, that we in ourselves decide to rebel against God, that we want our own independence, that we want to prove ourselves over everyone else. We want to identify our own worth and kind of cling to it that we pull each other apart. That is the disease and the sickness that Paul uses from the Asclepian temple and says that's happening here in Corinth. You're being pulled apart because you're not elevating God, but you're trying to elevate yourself. A quote from Francis Chan in his book Multiply just came out recently. It says, while every individual needs to obey Jesus' call to follow, that is that personal decision, that desire to know Jesus personally, we cannot follow Jesus as individuals. It says, well, every individual needs to obey Jesus' call to follow. We cannot follow as individuals. The Bible makes it clear that transformation, if you're feeling like you're missing something in your spiritual walk, transformation occurs by engaging the gospel and engaging others. As we sharpen one another, as we struggle together, as we encourage one another, we grow in our faith. It's not until we realize that God has given us our place in the body of Christ and the value that he has given us that we can fulfill these things. For those that feel like they're getting along fine without others, maybe you have that sense of, I've been doing this for 15, 20 years, and I've got it together. Or I've got this spiritual thing. I understand what's going on here. Paul would challenge you to involve yourself in the life of another individual. Another person in church that maybe you don't see as quite as far along as you are, that has a different set of questions than you do, that could push you on a little bit more. Some of the biggest times I've had in my life where I've grown is where somebody's challenged my faith. I grew up in Assemblies of God Church, which was not very conservative, and went to a very conservative college. And that was the most challenging time in my life because all of a sudden these people that are believers but have distinctly different perspectives started challenging me. So I would challenge you to get into a relationship like that. And it's not for the sake of demonstrating your own worth and your own ability. It's for the sake of helping that other person find their worth. Again, it's not on us, but it's on the others. For those that feel dispensable and worthless, like you don't belong because you don't look the part, you don't play the part, but you want, you, you want a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul would like to remind you that none of us got into this thing by our own merit. If you feel worthless, it's perfectly fine because you don't have to be worthy to become a Christian. That's the whole basis of the gospel. God would like to give you more than what is necessary this morning. As I experienced in my life, he wants to come alongside us and give us more than what is necessary. And it's not just for the sake of feeling good about ourselves, but it's about the, the purpose of reflecting Jesus Christ. That others might find hope, that we might live in a life of hope, and that's our goal.
That's what I want to pray for this morning, is that we would reflect Jesus Christ. If you guys would bow your head with me, uh, we can close. Lord, we thank you that you give us a place in a relationship with you. That, Lord, we don't have to demonstrate our worth or our value, but you come alongside of us, Lord, and you, you say you are worth something to me. That I want to intentionally reach out and meet you. Pray for those who feel worthy this morning, uh, myself included oftentimes. May we be reminded of the grace that you've given us through the gospel that we did not initially earn it, and we don't have to keep earning it over and over. Pray for those who feel worthless this morning, but don't know where they fit, don't know what they can contribute. Pray that you would come alongside them and bless them. Help them to see their value, that you laid everything down for them. And we thank you for this, Lord. May we reflect who you are to the world outside, to those who don't know you, that they might find hope and forgiveness through us. We thank you in your name. Amen. Hallelujah. The prayer team will be over on this far left wall, and then Grace and Five, if this is your first or second time here, and you haven't checked this out, uh, find out what we're all about at Grace and Five. Thank you guys for coming today. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.